Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, March 20th, 2023. Today, Team Trump is sending a last minute witness to the Manhattan DA grand jury as Trump indictments loom. Multiple law enforcement agencies prep for a Trump arraignment in New York as Donald foments violence. Trump attorney Tacopino could have a conflict of interest in the hush money payment case as he had an attorney-client relationship with Stormy Daniels in the past. The International Criminal Court has issued a warrant for the arrest of Vladimir Putin for war crimes. The Department of Justice is investigating TikTok's parent company for spying on American tech journalists. Hunter Biden has sued the Mac shop owner over the laptop debacle. Special counsel Jack Smith has the report issued to Trump by the Berkeley research firm disputing widespread voter fraud in 2020. The oversight Dems report that Donald failed to log over a quarter of a million dollars worth of gifts from foreign leaders. Judge Beryl Howell finds that Evan Corcoran must testify to certain things under the crime fraud exception to attorney client privilege. New evidence shows COVID's origins are animal to human transmission. Another pharmaceutical company caps insulin at $35 a month. A Florida bill would ban girls from talking about their periods in school. Wyoming passes the first law that prohibits taking abortion pills. Ronald Reagan prevented the release of U.S. hostages in Iran to beat Jimmy Carter in 1980. And early voting starts this week in Wisconsin elections. I'm Allison Gill. And we have a new record. For the longest intro of headlines, the busiest news weekend by far in my tenure as a reporter, just hands down, too many headlines. To even, and there's stuff that's left out of there, by the way, that we'll be going over this week with uh, Hugo Lowell on the Clean Up on Aisle 45 show on Wednesday. Much of the reporting has to do with a looming indictment in Manhattan. Dana will be back tomorrow. 
And as you know, a new episode of Jack is out with me and Andy McCabe. And like I said, Hugo Lowell will join me and Pete Strzok this Wednesday for Cleanup on Aisle 45. If you're not yet a Cleanup patron, which you can do for as little as a dollar an episode, we could really use your support right now more than ever. You can do that at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. If you have the ability, it would really, really help us out. All right. Early voting starts in Wisconsin this week. That were, you know, the main thing that we're focused on here. I mean, there's a lot of down ballot stuff going on, and I want to talk about that too. But it's the the Wisconsin Supreme Court. We could change the balance of the court to a 5-4 liberal majority. And Janet Protasiewicz is the liberal judge that is running on the ballot. So make sure you get out and vote. I think it's 5-4. Maybe it's 4-3. I apologize if I got that wrong. But regardless, you want to vote for Janet Protasiewicz. Also, our friend Dina Nina is running to be an alder in Wisconsin. So, you know, please get out, bring friends, go vote in Wisconsin. Early voting starts this week. The election ends on April 4th. Very, very important election. It could tip the balance in the U.S. House of Representatives. It could change the entire map by appointing a, a nonpartisan commission to draw the lines, much like they did in Michigan. And now they're triple blue over there in Michigan. So very, very important election. Please make sure to vote out there in Wisconsin. All right. As you can tell, we have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Just a waterfall of news out of the Manhattan DA's investigation and looming indictment into Donald Trump for the Stormy Daniels hush money payment and perhaps more that we don't know about. We know Cohen testified and he completed his testimony last Wednesday. And from what I understand, the grand jury only meets Mondays and Wednesdays. And today, this Monday, we know that uh, Cohen had told Alex Witt on the Sunday shows that he was being brought back in as a potential rebuttal witness to another witness. And just minutes later, the New York Times reported that that new witness that's coming in is a witness for the defense, for Trump's side. And that is Bob Costello. And if his name sounds familiar, it should. He's been a Trump world lawyer for a very long time. He dangled a pardon to Cohen back in the day when the you know, Southern District of New York was investigating Cohen and Individual One for this same crime. Trump wants him to come in. This seems like a mistake by Trump world to send him in because they could lock in his testimony on other things like the dangling pardons, which is could be construed as witness intimidation. He he was recently subpoenaed by the Department of Justice in the Bannon contempt case for potentially fucking with that case as well. Now, they didn't need that. They went ahead and got the conviction for Bannon. Of course, he's out pending appeal, which is weird. The judge let that happen. That's not a DOJ thing. That's something the judge did. We know that the Manhattan DA has been working with law enforcement agencies, including the Department of Justice, U.S. Marshals, the NYPD, and Secret Service to discuss preparation for the potential indictment this week. I don't know, and we don't know if, you know, Trump bringing in Bob Costello and then the DA wanting to use Cohen to rebut. Don't know if that's going to delay this indictment maybe until next week. I don't know. I really have no idea. But that seems like a last minute thing that Trump wanted to do. It seems like they were like Trump wanted maybe to go in and his lawyers were like, no. And he's like, all right, we'll send Costello. That seems to be the, the idea is that they would discredit Cohen as a witness. And that's why Cohen is there to rebut anything like that. I don't think it will stop 
an indictment. I don't think there's anything that he could testify to that would stop the indictment. But of course, I, uh, we also don't know what crimes, except for a falsification of business records, are being investigated here. And of course, Trump said over the weekend he's been, you know, yelling about this on Truth Social, which is also under federal criminal investigation for money laundering, among other things. But he said he was going to be arrested on Tuesday. And then he tried to foment violence by saying, protest, 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 we have to take our nation back. And it's not illegal to call for protests, but the take our nation back was a little concerning. Honestly, I don't think more than like, like when we saw the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago, there was like 12 chodes with Trump flags down at Mar-a-Lago. And now there's messaging on some messaging boards saying, let's go build a patriot moat around Mar-a-Lago to protect our president from being dragged out and arrested. But in all likelihood, what's supposed to happen is Trump just flies up there and they arraign him and they do a perp walk, if, which, again, Hugo Lulk has new reporting that Trump wants the perp walk. I tweeted a couple of days ago, like he will want to be handcuffed and walked so he can look like a martyr and, you know, make a spectacle in front of reporters. As it turns out, that's true. He's been mulling that over. He's been wanting to do that against the advice of his lawyers. But it's going to be a circus in New York. Meanwhile, all is quiet on the Georgia front. Uh, We haven't heard anything going on down there. Now, she's already set up security. She's already worked with police. Uh, The roads have already been closed in Georgia for a while now, ever since the special purpose grand jury came out with its findings. I mean, they did. We didn't see them publicly. We saw part of it, but mostly redacted. But when they were preparing the report, she got together with law enforcement to ensure security early on and close down the roads early on and put the National Guard on standby early on. Now, that doesn't necessarily preclude her from reaching out to Trump's lawyers to say, you've got one more chance to come in and argue why I shouldn't indict. She might do that for everybody that she's going to indict. It could take a while. And then, of course, if that stuff happens, we would hear about that. We haven't really heard a peep down there, though. It is my wish beyond wishes that she would swoop in and indict before the Manhattan DA does. But we haven't heard anything like that. Doesn't seem likely, but I just, you know, hey, those are my dreams. We're going to talk about all of this. Oh, and by the way, Tacopino, who, you know, who's the Trump lawyer who like lunged at Ari Melber, not like in a violent manner, but to get that piece of paper out of his hand that he was reading off of, that guy could have a conflict of interest. There might be a motion to waive conflict of interest or to for the court to consider it because he actually has a previous attorney-client relationship with Stormy Daniel, according to emails and, and writings. And you can look at Ryan Goodman's Twitter feed for more details on that. So all of this stuff, we're going to go over in detail with Hugo Lowell on this Wednesday's Clean Up on All 45 with me and Pete Strzok. So tune into that. And the same week that we learned that Trump's arrest is imminent, we learned that a warrant has been issued for Vladimir Putin. From Parker and Dixon at the Washington Post, judges for the International Criminal Court in The Hague issued on Friday arrest warrants for Russian President Vladimir Putin and another top Russian official. And this is the court's first such decision related to the war in Ukraine. Putin and Maria Lvova-Belova, that's Russia's Commissioner for Children's Rights, bear individual responsibility for the war crimes of unlawful deportation and unlawful transfer of children from occupied areas of Ukraine after Russia invaded the country last year. And that's what the judges allege. 
The warrant comes amid intense international pressure to hold Putin accountable for the atrocities committed by Russian forces in Ukraine and marked a highly unusual decision by the court during an ongoing conflict. The move is largely symbolic. According to the Post, Russia, like the United States, does not accept the ICC's jurisdiction. The court does not try people in absentia, and international law experts say it's unlikely, barring major political change in Russia, for Putin to end up in front of the court at all. But the warrants could create difficulties for those named to travel to countries that cooperate with the court. And for Putin, the first head of a state of a permanent member of the UN Security Council for whom the ICC has issued an arrest warrant, it's a major reputational blow as his war in Ukraine continues into its second year. And I don't understand how you can still maintain a seat on the UN Security Council after having a warrant issued for your arrest by The Hague. I hope they take a second look at that. Now, more news out of the Justice Department. From Thrush and Mashawari at The Times, the Department of Justice is investigating the surveillance of American citizens, including several journalists who cover the tech industry, by the Chinese company that owns TikTok. That's according to three people familiar with the investigation. This probe, which began late last year, appears to be tied to the admission in December by the company ByteDance that its employees had inappropriately obtained the data of American TikTok users, including that of two reporters and a few of their associates. The department's criminal division, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia are investigating ByteDance, which is based in Beijing and has close ties with China's government. That's according to a person with knowledge. A Justice Department spokesman has no comment. The White House has called for TikTok to divest from China, its Chinese investors. Now, the app has over 150 million users in the U.S. alone. It's like half of us. It's huge. And from Josh Dawsey at The Washington Post, when Donald Trump called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd, 2021, in the now infamous bid to overturn the 2020 election, he alleged that thousands of dead people had voted in the state. So dead people voted. I think the number's close to 5,000 people. Uh, and they went to uh, to obituaries. They, they went to all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number. And a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters. He said that without citing his sources. But a report commissioned by his own campaign and paid for by his own campaign, maybe, dated one day prior, January 1st, this report was dated January 1st, told a different story. Researchers paid by Trump's team had high confidence of only nine dead voters in Fulton County, defined as ballots that may have been cast by someone else in the name of a deceased person. They believe there was a potential statewide exposure of 23 such votes across the entire state. That's about 5,000 fewer, 4977 fewer than the minimum that Trump claimed. Now, in a separate failed bid to overturn the results in Nevada, Trump's lawyer said in a court filing, that 1,506 ballots were cast in the names of dead people, and 42,284 people voted twice. Trump lost the Silver State by about 33,000 votes. The researchers, paid by Trump's team, had high confidence that only 12 ballots were cast in the names of deceased people in Clark County, Nevada, and believed the high-end exposure was 20 voters statewide. That's about 1,486 fewer than Trump's lawyers said. According to their research, the low-end potential exposure of a double vote was 45 people. The high-end potential exposure was 9,000. The judge tossed the Nevada case even as Trump continued to claim he won the state. The, quote, Project 2020 report is what it's called, 
This is the same report we've talked about conducted by the Berkeley Research Group. Has now been obtained by the Department of Justice, Jack Smith investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. A copy was reviewed by the Post, and it shows that Trump's own campaign paid more than $600,000 for the research that undercut all of his claims. The research was never made public, but Trump saw it. The Justice Department has sought and obtained multiple reports and emails and interviews from witnesses that show campaign officials analyzing and often discrediting Trump's claims, the ones he was making publicly. That's according to several people involved in the investigation who, like some others, spoke on the condition of anonymity. The Berkeley report was provided to the Justice Department earlier this month after some people involved in its crafting received a subpoena. So that is how the DOJ got this report. They subpoenaed the people who wrote it. People presumably from the Berkeley research firm. Andy and I are going to cover this more in depth on next week's Jack podcast. Look forward to that. And in a related story from Alamany, Hasu, and Dazi at the Washington Post, a federal judge has at least partially granted a request from prosecutors, Jack Smith, to force an attorney for Donald Trump to testify before a grand jury about Trump's possession of classified documents. That's according to two people. The lawyer, Evan Corcoran, had refused to answer investigators' questions about his interactions with Trump, and he invoked attorney-client privilege. That's a principle of U.S. legal practice that says lawyers must keep confidential what they're told by their clients. U.S. prosecutors argued People for Jack Smith's office argued there's exceptions here, including when there's evidence that the client used the attorney's legal services in furtherance of a crime. In secret court filings and a hearing held behind closed doors earlier this month, people familiar with the matter said that prosecutors sought to show Chief U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell that there were grounds for a crime fraud exception. Trump's team is expected to ask incoming Chief U.S. District Judge Bozberg who succeeds the term-limited Howell, as of midnight on Saturday, they're going to ask him to stay the order while they appeal. That's according to people familiar with the matter. But Jose Paglieri of the Daily Beast has a source that says handwritten notes from Evan Corcoran were handed over to the DOJ by Judge Beryl Howell under the crime fraud exception. But apparently, without giving any time for Trump and his legal team to respond, Something about this story bugs me, though. I don't see how depriving Trump and his lawyers the right to ask for a stay pending appeal and the right to appeal on that decision, unless Trump's team didn't oppose the order. I hope we'll learn more about that part of the story as it unfolds. We saw this in the Eastman emails. He didn't appeal. He just handed them over. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> doesn't make sense. That Judge Howell would do that. He'd just hand him over without giving the Trump team time to appeal. But hopefully we find out what's going on there. And from Matt Viser at The Washington Post, Hunter Biden has filed a sweeping countersuit against a computer repair shop owner who said that Biden dropped his laptop off and never claimed it. It's a legal action that escalates the battle over how provocative data and images of the president's son were obtained nearly four years ago. In the counterclaim filed Friday morning in the U.S. District Court in Delaware, Hunter Biden and his attorneys say that John Paul Mac Isaac had no legal right to copy and distribute private information. They accuse him and others of six counts of invasion of privacy, including conspiracy to obtain and distribute the data. A 42-page filing goes into significant detail on the, way, the ways that Hunter Biden's data became public, a development that propelled it 
into the maelstrom of the last presidential campaign and, since January, to the center of the Republican-led congressional investigations of Hunter Biden. Quote, as a result of Mac Isaac's unlawful agreement and his conspiracy with others, Mr. Biden's personal data was made available to third parties and then ultimately to the public at large, which is highly offensive, causing harm to Mr. Biden and his reputation. Quote, the object of invading Mr. Biden's privacy and disseminating his data was not for any legitimate purpose, but to cause harm and embarrassment to Hunter Biden, unquote. Now, the suit does not address the falsification of much of the material on the hard drive placed there by Rudy Giuliani that was funded by Dmitry Firtash. Lev Parnas this week tweeted that in October of 2019, he attended a meeting with Rudy Giuliani, along with lawyers for Dmitry Firtash, named, of course, Victoria Tonsing and Joe DeGeneva. And Fox News contributor John Solomon. That meeting happened at Fox News headquarters in D.C., and they discussed effectuating a swap of Hunter Biden's data from Rudy's crew in exchange for Barr lifting the extradition order on Fertosh. Very interesting if he has receipts. Now, there's so much news today. We're going to have to do something we haven't done in years and take a break in the middle of the hot notes. We'll be right back. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back from Dazi and Alamany at The Post. Federal officials cannot find two gifts received by Trump and his family from foreign nations, including a life-size painting of Trump from the president of El Salvador and golf clubs from the Japanese prime minister. And that's according to a new report from the House Democrats. Maybe they're with Mike Pompeo's $5,700 bottle of Japanese whiskey. Who knows? The gifts are among more than 100 foreign gifts with a total value of nearly 300 grand that Trump and his family failed to report to the State Department in violation of federal law. This is a, he, this is a <laughs> another crime, uh, but this is like crime number 7,842. Another crime that, you know, citing government records and emails. So that's what's happening here. That is a violation to not report those gifts. The 15-page report, a result of a year-long investigation by the House Oversight Committee into Trump's failure to disclose gifts from foreign government officials, revealed that Trump and his family did not disclose dozens of gifts from countries that are not U.S. allies or have a complicated relationship with D.C. That includes 16 gifts from Saudi Arabia worth more than 48 grand, 17 gifts from India worth more than $17,000, and at least five gifts from China. Trump reported zero gifts entirely the final year of his presidency, according to the report, while he reported some of the gifts received in previous years, zero in the final year. Investigators are continuing to search for the large portrait of Trump given to him ahead of the 2020 election by the Salvadorian president and the golf clubs, which are worth more than seven grand that he got from Shinzo Abe. Quote, if someone accepts gifts, you're not allowed to take under the Constitution or government ethics rules. It's not criminal. And that's Richard Painter, who's been a guest on our show, or at least Mueller, she wrote, chief White House ethics lawyer for G.W. Bush. He goes on to say, but if anyone knowingly lied on the gift disclosure forms, that's a violation of the false statement statute, and that should be referred to the Department of Justice. So throw another crime on the pile, I guess. Uh, Anyway, now from Ben Mueller at The Times, an international team of virus experts said on Thursday they have found genetic data from a market in Wuhan, China, linking the coronavirus with raccoon dogs for sale there adding evidence to the case that the worst pandemic in a century could have been ignited by an infected animal that was being dealt through an illegal wildlife trade. The genetic data was drawn from swabs taken from and in and around the Hunan seafood wholesale market starting in January of 2020, shortly after the Chinese authorities had shut down the market because of the suspicions it was linked to the outbreak 
By then, the animals had been cleared out, but researchers swabbed walls and floors and metal cages and carts, often used for transporting animals. Now, in samples that came back positive for COVID, the international research team found genetic material belonging to animals, including large amounts that were a match for the raccoon dog. That's according to three scientists involved in the analysis. The jumbling together of genetic material from the virus and the animal does not prove the raccoon dog itself was infected. And even if a raccoon dog had been infected, it would not be clear that the animal had spread the virus to people. Another animal could have passed the virus to people, or someone infected with the virus could have spread the virus to the raccoon dog. A report with the full details of the international research team's findings has not yet been published. Their analysis was first reported this week by The Atlantic. The new evidence is sure to provide a jolt to the debate over the uh, pandemic's origins, even if it does not resolve the question of how it began. In recent weeks, the so-called lab leak theory, which posits that coronavirus emerged from a research lab in Wuhan, has gained traction thanks to new intelligence assessments from the U.S. Department of Energy, even though they were with low confidence, and hearings led by the new Republican House leadership, who really, really want it to be Fauci's fault. Also, from NBC News, Sanofi will cap the out-of-pocket costs of its most popular insulin, Lantus, at $35 a month for people with private insurance. This is the French drug maker said this on Thursday. The change will take effect January 1st of next year. Sanofi is the last of three major insulin makers in the United States to cut or cap the price of insulin. Both Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk announced changes to how they price their insulin this month, and together the three drug makers make up roughly 90% of the insulin market in the United States. President Joe Biden praised the move in a statement on Thursday saying, as of this afternoon, all three leading insulin producers in America have agreed to substantially reduce their prices following my calls to expand my $35 cap for seniors to all Americans. The Inflation Reduction Act capped out-of-pocket insulin costs for seniors on Medicare at $35 a month, but did not offer relief to those younger than 65 who rely on the drug because the Republicans voted to strip that out of the act. After Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk acted, it seemed likely only a matter of time before Sanofi did the same. Thank you, President Biden. And from Timothy Bella at The Washington Post, as Florida Republicans are introducing and advancing a wave of bills on gender and diversity that are likely to be signed into law by DeSantis, one GOP lawmaker acknowledged this week that his proposed sexual health bill would ban girls from talking about their menstrual cycles in school. During a Florida House Education Quality Subcommittee hearing Wednesday, State Rep. Ashley Gant, a Democrat, questioned her Republican colleague, State Rep. Stan McClain, on his proposed legislation that would restrict certain educational materials used in state schools, which Democrats and critics have likened to banning books. This is House Bill 1069. It would also require that instruction on sexual health, such as health education, sexually transmitted diseases, and human sexuality, only occur in grades 6 through 12, which prompted Gantt to ask whether the proposed legislation would prohibit young girls from talking about their periods in school when they first start having them. Quote, so if little girls experience their menstrual cycle in fifth grade or fourth grade, will that prohibit conversations from them since they're in the grade lower than the sixth grade? She asked. McLean responded, yes, it would. Quote, I thought it was pretty remarkable that the beginning of a little girl's menstrual cycle was not contemplated as they drafted this bill, she said on Friday. Gant was echoed by advocates such as Annie Filkowski, the policy and political director of the Florida Alliance of Planned Parenthood affiliates, who told The Post that young Floridians will suffer if this legislation becomes law. Quote, this bill shines a bright light 
on Florida's political leader's perpetual thirst for power and control, she said in a statement, adding it was ridiculous to prohibit young girls from discussing menstruation with their teachers. And in more news from Gilead, Chen and Bellick write for The New York Times that Wyoming on Friday became the first state to explicitly ban the use of pills for abortion, adding momentum to a growing push by conservative states and anti-abortion groups to target medication abortion, the method now used in a majority of pregnancy terminations in the United States. Wyoming's new law comes as a preliminary ruling is expected soon by a Texas judge that could order the U.S. FDA to withdraw its approval of mifeprestone. That's the first pill in a two-drug medication abortion regimen. Such a ruling, if it stands, could upend how abortion is provided nationally, affecting states where abortion is legal, as well as states with bans and restrictions. Legislation to ban or add restrictions on medication abortion has been introduced in several states this year, including a bill in Texas that would not only prohibit medication abortion, but would require internet service providers to take steps to block medication abortion websites so people in Texas could not go to them. In these states, proposals to block or restrict abortion pills have typically been introduced along with other anti-abortion measures. As a reflection of the range of obstacles to abortion, these states have tried to erect since the Supreme Court overturned the national right to abortion last June, and even before that, decades before that. And that's not all the news, by God. Stick around for the shocker of the last half century. I have no idea, by the way, Rachel Maddow, how you're going to cram all this into an hour tonight. (laughs) Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. All right. Incredible reporting from Peter Baker at the New York Times. The headline is a four decade secret. One man's story of sabotaging Carter's reelection. And the, the lead here is that a prominent Texas politician said he unwittingly took part in a 1980 tour of the Middle East with a clandestine agenda. It has been more than four decades, but Ben Barnes said he remembers it vividly. His longtime political mentor invited him on a mission to the Middle East What Mr. Barnes said he did not realize until later was the real purpose of the mission, to sabotage the re-election campaign of the President of the United States. It was 1980, Jimmy Carter was in the White House, and he was uh, bedeviled by a hostage crisis in Iran that had paralyzed his presidency and hampered his effort to win a second term. Mr. Carter's best chance for victory was to free the 52 Americans held captive before Election Day. That was something that Mr. Barnes said his mentor was determined to prevent. That mentor was John B. Connolly Jr., a titan of American politics, former Texas governor. He had served three presidents and just lost his own bid for the White House. John B. Connolly Jr., former Democrat. Mr. Connolly had sought the Republican nomination in 1980, only to be swamped by Ronald Reagan. Now, Mr. Connolly resolved to help Mr. Reagan beat Jimmy Carter. And in the process, Mr. Barnes said, make his own case for becoming Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration. What happened next, Mr. Barnes has largely kept secret for nearly 43 years. Mr. Connolly, he said, took him to one Middle Eastern capital after another that summer, meeting with a host of regional leaders to deliver a blunt message to be passed to Iran. Don't release the hostages before the election. Mr. Reagan will win and give you a better deal. Mr. Carter's camp has long suspected that Mr. Casey or someone else in Mr. Reagan's orbit sought to secretly torpedo efforts to liberate the hostages before the election. Books have been written on what came to be called the October Surprise, but congressional investigations debunked previous theories of what happened. Mr. Connolly 
did not figure into those investigations. His involvement, as described by Mr. Barnes, adds a new understanding, 43 years later, to what may have happened in that hard-fought pivotal election year. With Mr. Carter now 98 and in hospice care, Mr. Barnes said he felt compelled to come forward and correct the record. History needs to know that this happened, he said. Mr. Barnes turns 85 next month. This is, he said this in one of several interviews, his first with a news organization about the episode. He went on to say, I think it's so significant. And I guess knowing that the end is near for President Carter, put it on my mind more and more. I just feel like we've got to get it down some way. Now, Mr. Barnes is no shady foreign arms dealer with questionable credibility. Peter writes here, like some of the other characters who fueled previous iterations of the October surprise theory, he was once, Barnes was once the most prominent figure in Texas, youngest speaker of the Texas House, a later lieutenant governor, who's such an influential figure that he helped a young George W. Bush get into the Texas Air National Guard so that he didn't have to go to Vietnam. LBJ predicted that Barnes would become president someday. Barnes, recalling joining Mr. Connolly in early September to sit down with Mr. Casey to report on their trip during a three-hour meeting in the American Airlines Lounge at what was then called the Dallas-Fort Worth Regional Airport. An entry into Mr. Connolly's calendar found this past week showed that he traveled to Dallas on September 10th. A search of Mr. Casey's archives at the Hoover Institution and Stanford University turned up no documents indicating whether he was in Dallas or not. But Mr. Barnes said he was certain the point of Mr. Connolly's trip was to get a message to the Iranians to hold the hostages until after the election. Quote, I'll go to my grave, believing that that was the purpose of the trip. It wasn't freelancing because Casey was so interested in hearing as soon as we got back to the United States. Mr. Casey, he added, wanted to know whether they were going to hold the hostages. None of that establishes whether Mr. Reagan knew about the trip. Nor could Mr. Barnes say that Mr. Casey directed Mr. Connolly to take the journey. Likewise, he does not know if the message transmitted to multiple Middle Eastern leaders got to the Iranians, much less whether it influenced their decision-making. But Iran did hold those hostages until after the election, which Reagan won, and they released them minutes after noon on January 20th, 1981, when Jimmy Carter left office. So you see... Republicans have a long history of stealing elections by hurting Americans. Those hostages had to remain there so that Reagan could win. Not much has changed in the last 50 years. You can read the entire story, by the way, at the New York Times, Peter Baker. Oh, and by the way, the term October surprise was originally used by the Reagan camp to describe its fears that Carter would manipulate the hostage crisis to get a release just before the election the long Republican tradition of accusing your opponent of that which you are guilty. All right, we will be right back with the good news. Thanks for sticking with me through all of these hot notes. It is the busiest news weekend of my career. So if you have good news you want to send to us, we need it. Send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Near. 
Good news. Good and if you have good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play what the mutt, you want to send frog orgy photos or baby pictures or your pod pet, pay your pod pet tax, especially if they're wearing costumes or dresses or, you know, bling. Or if you don't have a pet, you can send uh, information about an adoptable pet in your area or give a shout out to somebody that you love. Or we can play shit kids say or shit your parents say or shit you say. Or if you have a small business in your area that you want to give a shout out to that's absolutely amazing, we would love to hear about that too. You can send it all to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from Chuck M. No pronouns given. Hello, Beans. I wanted to share a feel-good story. This is Rhonda. We think she's about 10. We adopted her a little over a year ago. She was a puppy mill mama. She was kept in a crate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When we got her, she couldn't walk down four stairs to get to our backyard. I started walking with her in April of last year, and now she's up to walking three miles at a time. She loves everybody she meets, and although she's not the sharpest tool in the shed, she's sweet and she loves her life. Chuck M., thank you for adopting this beautiful brindle Frenchy mama. She is adorable. Rhonda, about 10 years old. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing that for Rhonda. Next up from Kirsten in PAO1. Pronounce she and her. Hi, AGDG and the Leguminati family. It's another bit of Bucks County good news here. And in response to your earlier comment that you should do an event here, yes, we would love to host you. Maybe something closer to our school board races. You can help us bring attention to the book banning, anti-LGBTQ plus majority and horrible policies afoot in the school board of the third largest school district in Pennsylvania. Let's talk. Uh, but onto the good news. Indivisible is one of about five different national groups who have targeted the first district here, PA01, Republican Brian Fitzpatrick for the next congressional cycle, along with Move On, Lincoln Project, Emily's List, and the Majority Pack. We Indivisies in Bucks County are holding a St. Patrick's Day at Fitzpatrick's Office event as part of the Indivisible Unrepresentative 18 program. I'd ask our fellow Beans team to take a moment and search hashtag PA01 and hashtag Cowardly Brian on Twitter and amplify what you see there. Thank you. And because I'm a sucker for limericks and use St. Patty's Day as an excuse to draft them, every MAGA Republican antic is making our nation more sick. This cannot be mended while we're unrepresented by Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. (laughs) Very good. Too bad we got this guy. Look at this event. That's so great. I'm so glad you had that on St. Patrick's Day. Wonderful. Every MAGA Republican antic is now making... Yes, this is so great. Well done. Thank you, Kirsten. Keep up the work down there. Next up from Patty, pronoun she and her. Hi, Beans Queens. I have a pet taxes related to the cat in the tape box. We do a similar thing in our home, except we call it the Groot Trap. It's basically the same idea, but for dogs. We discovered if we put a towel on the floor, Groot will walk over and lay down and just hang out on the towel. I've got pictures of both Groot and Ziggy in their traps. Groot is a brindle staffy, and Ziggy is the black and white pity mix. And, you know, there might be a reason for this, Patty. If you adopted these dogs, every single puppy obedience class I've taken to get your dog to, like, you know, go into their crate or lay down or stay near you is you put a towel down and they immediately go and and sit down on the towel. How cute is that? Groot traps. Hi, Groot. (laughs) And there's the black and white pity mix Ziggy. So adorable. Thank you for that. Oh, there they both are on one towel. It's like a, it's like the end of Titanic, but they both fit. I love it. Next up from Jenna. Hello, Beans Queens. It's so good to hear y'all together again. I love you both equally, but I prefer y'all together. 
The energy is amazing and y'all are funny as hell bouncing off of each other. My favorite time of day while getting ready for work. I have written in before. I am the cat lady that runs the cat herder rescue feral catch spay neuter release or home program. That was a little wordy. So I want to discuss two things. First things first, making a square on the floor with painter tape. Me and my daughter plan to do this and report back with photos. I believe 100% it will work because it pretty much already does here with a rug that I have. It's pictured here. It's uh, flower-like with a round center. Every one of my cats, it's directly in the center of the circle. I can only attach two pics, but all my cats do it. We have been photo documenting this for months, so I can't wait to try the tape. Second, speaking of blankets, my mom brought me home in a baby blanket with a silk edging. She also has a small pillow with hearts. The name was Blanket and Night Night. She put me to bed with this and it never ended. I also got a larger pillow at around 10 years old. I ended up putting the torn and tattered blanket and small pillow inside the casing of the large pillow. The blanket and pillow got so tattered over the years that I had no choice. So Blanket and Night Night live inside a big pillow. Over time, the name changed to simply Big Pillow. I'm 46 years old and I still sleep with Big Pillow. (laughs) Still, to this day, (laughs) y'all. Every night, my entire life, I've slept with these guys. I can simply, I can't simply, oh, I can simply toss the whole thing into the wash. Not judging other parents, but I don't find it necessary to take such things from kids. My kids never grew attachments to anything like this, so I never had to make that choice. But I'm glad my mom never took mine away. It's not stunted my emotional growth or hindered me in any way. It's just a sleeping comfort. I encourage parents to allow their kids to keep their big pillows. Sorry so long. Love y'all dearly. I'm in Moggettsville, but I do have normal friends and clients. I share this podcast with all of them. Have a great day. And here is the kitty sitting in the middle of the rug. (laughs) I look forward to your painter's tape photos. Hi, beautiful babies. Thank you for sending those in. So cute. And finally, from Sally, pronoun she and her. Hello, beautiful people of the beans. Well, I was curious about this cat and the tape shape thing. My cat wasn't having any of it. So does it have to be blue tape? What am I missing? Attached is our final result. (laughs) I wish you guys could see this beautiful wooden floors. And there's a masking tape rectangle. And sitting right outside the rectangle is an adorable doggo. And then about four feet away is another adorable doggo. And then sitting on the arm of the couch, not really looking at anyone, is the beautiful cat, totally ignoring the tape on the floor. And there, this is so funny. <laughs> you just, I don't know, I guess you just have rebels. Um, yeah, no, this, this should work. Maybe it's the dogs. Maybe the cat's like, I'm not getting down there with the dogs. It could be it. It's so cute, though. Thank you for sending that in, Sally. If you have a cat and some painter's tape or some masking tape or some tape that will not ruin your floor, make a little box, a little rectangle, maybe, I don't know, 18 inches by a foot or so. See if your cat sits in it and then send us the photos. We would love to see it. Thank you for everyone who sent in the good news. And if you have any more to send in, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Dana will be back tomorrow. I'm so sorry she wasn't here today. She had to travel. Uh, But we will be back together again tomorrow. I look forward to it. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you in Wisconsin. Uh, I've been H.E. and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane. 
with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>